Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. Hi, and I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Welcome to Local Zero. This is a podcast that gives you a guide to taking climate action at the local level. And this is episode four, where we're going to be focusing our holiday season spirit and thinking about others, especially as the temperatures start to plummet and many people might be struggling to pay their energy bills or keep warm inside their homes. Fuel poverty is a critical and persistent issue for some of society's most vulnerable groups and individuals. In this episode, we ask, what kind of action is required to eradicate fuel poverty for good? So Matt, I'm sure you, you're feeling the same as me. It's getting colder here in Glasgow. We've had evenings down to one or two degrees. I'm actually sitting here right now with my electric blanket on, snuggled up in my office, struggling to keep warm in the big room that I'm working in. But, you know, it brings me back to when I lived in New Zealand. Um, So I spent five years there and fuel poverty is a, a huge issue, particularly on the South Island. Not because people are necessarily poor, but because we've got such terrible building stock there. And actually, it was so extreme that I remember a physics professor did this experiment where they looked at measuring temperatures inside the students' homes, because the students tended to live in the worst homes in the city. And they found in one of the homes that the temperature inside their house was um, colder than the temperature inside of their working refrigerator. Okay. I, I mean, I'm no expert on thermodynamics, but that, that doesn't sound good. And actually, a lot of students um, that we talked to when I lived in New Zealand would would try and get out of their, their homes in winter, um, go to the libraries or, or wrap up warm somewhere else. You know, actually, sometimes it encouraged them to come into university, which was no bad thing. But, you know, really looking at where we're at and what COVID means, our students might struggle to do this this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it just stops with students there, does it? I've heard of plenty of people finding, you know, that sort of moment's warmth at work because, you know, they can't afford to heat the homes. So that that would be where, you know, they would typically be saving on their energy bills. Uh, And of course, COVID is really starting to push many of us back into our homes uh, and and having to really ramp up the heating and ramp up our energy bills. And actually thinking about uh, students and younger people probably Fraser's a lot closer to them than uh, than we are. So I'd like to welcome Fraser Stewart with us this episode and every episode. Hi Fraser. Hello, hello. Yes, here in my drafty tenement building in the in the south side of Glasgow. I totally know what you mean. I'm actually 
rather than from a student's perspective, this is a topic that's super close to my heart. I grew up experiencing these issues. I grew up in quite a rough area and just outside of Dundee. And I remember during the winters having a, a shower before school in the morning and it being an electric shower and the shower cutting out because we couldn't afford to have heating on during the winter and to like run a shower or run a boiler or anything like that. Um, so I'm glad that we're doing this episode. I remember being outside with like shampoo in my hair and a towel on trying to put the emergency electricity box on on the outside. So I've moved on from that, thankfully, into a nice drafty old tenement building, which is no cheaper to run. Um, and it feels very, it, it feels very pertinent just now, very pertinent. So I'm glad we're doing this topic this this episode and of course fraser in the context that you just laid out there for some some people for some families their energy bills will rocket this winter so there was some some research that came out of energy helpline back in september i think it was that suggests that this winter they expect bills to grow for about uh, between 100 and 100 pounds and 110 pounds for those working at home so you know we're looking at adding you know a, a tremendous amount on for some families and big question marks about whether they're going to be able to pay yeah, and presumably that's that's thinking about largely homes that might be using, say, gas central heating and looking at price increases because of that. But obviously, like clear in my head is also thinking about that that uh, report that came out from the UK Energy Research Centre that looked at just what needs to change if we're going to be meeting our net zero targets. And of course, that means moving away from gas and starting to look at other options like heat pumps and so on. And of course. In today's climate, that's a lot more expensive to run. So not only is COVID going to be creating this squeeze by seeing people at home more and needing to heat their homes even warmer, but in our transition, you know, could we start to see increasing problems there as well? It really was quite uh, shocking to me anyway, to read the UK government's recent 10-point plan, uh, you know, building back better, the green industrial revolution, and the fact that fuel poverty and the fuel poor weren't mentioned once. Mm -mm, no. You know, some of the schemes that, that maybe are designed to help alleviate that were uh, things like the Green Home Grants, uh, looking to extend that by a year. But the big question is, is the government focused squarely at dealing with this issue with the policies that were laid out in that document? And you think about similar previous policies as well. If we look at even things like the feed-in tariff or the Green Homes Grant, which we know has had its own major issues. So rarely, even when there's inbuilt priority for low income, even when we talk about fuel poor explicitly within these policies, they're still very, very bad at actually reaching the people who need them most. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's why we're here, right? That's why we're talking about local action and who can do what, who can help individuals and who can help households at the local level, whether it's councils, community groups or, or charities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we need to do and what we're focusing this episode on is making sure that our, our push towards this green energy transition doesn't leave anyone behind. And right now we're going to be channeling that holiday season spirit to focus this episode on thinking about others. You're listening to Matt, Becky and Fraser at Local Zero. So if you want to follow us on social media, uh, use the hashtag Local Zero and you'll find us at energyrev underscore UK. If you want to send us any questions uh, you want answered, uh, we're happy to do so. And we'll get right back to you later in the series. So as mentioned at the beginning of the show, fuel poverty is an issue that's very personal to me. I grew up experiencing that reality and still remember it quite vividly. However, it is also something that I've been lucky enough to move on from. For millions of others, fuel poverty is still very much a reality today. We've kept this short because the audio quality isn't great, but I've been speaking to people here in Glasgow about what being fuel poor means to them. 
buy a fire, so it was costing me a fortune. You know, it was something ridiculous, like £60 a week I was paying. Wow. Just for the bad fires, that's wild. Yeah. Robert has some mobility issues and lives alone in a tenement flat on Glasgow's south side and has done for over a decade now. Around five years ago, Robert reached out to local energy advocacy group Southseeds, who we met in our last episode, to help with his heating bills. Due to living in an old rented flat with no central heating, no double glazing, classic old rundown Glasgow tenement. The house is always freezing, and I always had a I hit him in both the bedrooms, but they were costing a fortune. In order to keep his home heated, Robert was forced to spend the vast majority of his disability allowance on electricity, meaning that he would then struggle to afford food for the rest of the month. I was getting travel expenses extra, that was uh, £60, and that was more or less getting used up. Oh, they, they burn through money, don't they, the, the bar heaters? I mind oh, they hand them, them when we were growing up as well, and it was just, oh... Mm-hmm. Robert also couldn't afford additional mobility services required to let him have any sort of social or leisure time outside of the home. Fuel poverty can be an exceptionally tough, but also quite a lonely situation to be in. This was not helped by quite a turbulent relationship with Robert's landlord at the property, who was reluctant to spend the substantial additional costs needed to bring the flat up to any kind of decent efficiency standard. We'll hear more about the issues in the private rented sector later in the show. Luckily for Robert, some local help was on hand through South Seeds, by connecting with South Seeds, Robert was able to source Warmer Homes grant funding to install a central heating system, a genuinely, genuinely life-changing event in Robert's life. From not being able to afford food, Robert told me that the enormous savings from the new central heating system has allowed him to afford a new mobility car, which means he can get out and about to local events much more easily. He still doesn't have his double glazing just yet, but there's no doubt that Robert's life has been vastly improved by something that many of us often do take for granted. So have you noticed then, since the central heating went in, have you noticed that your costs have come down? Oh, yeah, we have. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely have. So that saving that you've made on your... Probably put an extra £50 in my pocket. Unbelievable saving that. Oh, it changed my life. Fantastic. Evidently then, fuel poverty is still a huge and pressing issue for many people in their day-to-day lives. While each person's experience is unique to them, there are some common issues that persist. Issues that haven't really changed since I was growing up. People still face the choice between heating and eating, and are forced to decide between powering the home and enjoying healthier social and physical lives. What is also clear, however, is that there are things that can be done at the local level to tackle fuel poverty and make people's lives better in a very significant way. And that's really set us up for the rest of the episode to help contextualise what we're going to talk about in the reality of what people are experiencing in their everyday lives. Our next guest is Professor Amy Ambrose. She's a professor of energy policy at Sheffield Hallam University, and she's also the chair of the UK's Fuel Poverty Research Network. If you're in poverty, you're probably more likely to also be in fuel poverty, but not universally so. So some groups that are on a low income 
and in poverty may live in social housing. Social housing tends to perform better in terms of energy performance and you may not be in fuel poverty or in fuel poverty to the same extent. If you're on a low income and you live in the private rented sector, you are highly likely to also be in fuel poverty. But actually, rurality is a factor as well. So if you're off the gas network, uh, that's a major risk factor as well. If you're using oil or something else to heat your home, that makes you more likely to be in fuel poverty too. But it disproportionately affects people in the private rented sector because that's where our poorest quality uh, accommodation and our most vulnerable segments of the population are, are disproportionately concentrated. And so with covid there seems to have been a fair amount of research in the last few months pointing to how energy bills are going up with people working from home. But then, you know, there's other debates that actually you may see a reduction in costs. For instance, those people who are working from home are not having to commute. And so there's an added saving there. I guess there's two questions to that. The first is, do we see some of the, do you think some of the cost savings in other elements of our lives maybe offsetting the increased cost? And I think the bigger question is, are we actually talking about the right people here? Because some some homes are actually able to shift their work to home. I don't have any hard and fast figures on this, but I would be most concerned about those people who are actually out of work because of the pandemic or on furlough. You know, the idea of, of the lack of transport costs, offsetting energy costs, I, I don't think we can really buy into that. And energy is one of the, the largest um, household expenditures that any of us face, particularly during the winter months. So I really doubt that um, that those kind of savings are going to offset the increase in, in energy costs from working at home. I mean, estimates that I've read suggest we're going to spend 90% of our, our time in the home this winter. And, you know, the cost of entertaining children at home as well, the additional electricity costs that that, that involve have to be factored in as well. That's a really important point. You're not just increasing your energy consumption because you're working from home. You're also playing from home or, you know, for want of a better word, living at home. Mm. Yeah, You're doing everything. Yeah. You know, your home is your world at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. And the downward pressure on jobs uh, and, as you say, furlough, which obviously is not 100% of your, your wage. And we're already hearing, I think, you know, off-gen, we're talking about the price energy cap as uh, COVID re- reared its head. There was a you know a reduction in the energy price cap, but now I think in the last week, there's some noises coming out that they're going to have to reduce the reduction, as it were, to account for some of the defaulting on energy bills. Would that worry you as a fuel poverty researcher? Absolutely, the cap's there to protect the most vulnerable people in society, and you can't you can't mess around with those protections in order to offset you know the level of debt that that's that's happening as a result of the pandemic. I I, I was really dismayed to see that actually the changes to the price cap. I think we need to be we need to be looking somewhere else to deal with that that fuel debt, and perhaps we actually look to the profits of of the energy companies. One of the things we're talking about is um, is what we're doing to address climate change. And I think we're clearly going to have to shift away from gas, whether that's towards heat pumps, towards district heating schemes, or possibly even hydrogen in the future. There are going to be changes. Do you see this shift away from gas as something that could start to exacerbate fuel poverty? So it, it either make it worse for people that might already be in fuel poverty or start to see more and more people feeling the effects of fuel poverty? Yeah. Uh, so the gas transition is something I've been been thinking a lot about. And actually, quite a few fuel poverty alleviation schemes are still actually relying on connecting people to the gas grid to alleviate fuel poverty. And there's no doubt that gas is is our sort of cheapest option in terms of, of heating our homes. 
So it is still a key prong in our approach to alleviating fuel poverty, which is a concern when we we know that we need to to phase out gas and pretty rapidly. And by 2025, it it won't be possible to put new gas connections into new housing. I don't think that's that's soon enough, actually, because we're building a huge amount of new housing at the moment. And wouldn't it be a, a good opportunity to? But apparently the technology, the alternative technology is not there. The government is still looking into the possibility of of putting nuclear generated hydrogen through the through the gas network and i think there's still a lot of work to do on that the other solution that's being banded around is is air source heat pumps as someone who spent some time living in new zealand becky i think you you might have picked up that then they're not the panacea that a lot of people think they are the property they're put into needs to be a, a well insulated envelope for them to be effective otherwise they're just plugging away you know they're, they're working so hard and they're not achieving a great deal they're not great if the temperature dips down below five degrees and you know you people living in scotland i'm pretty sure that happens a bit more frequently than it, it does down down here and some research I've done suggests that actually if if they're not well explained to the end user, then they could end up costing them an awful lot more. So there's no really convincing uh, alternative at the moment. The other thing that happened around when we transitioned to gas central heating, which really was a major transition, you know, in the 1970s, and it's changed all of our lives. It was a middle class led transition. The middle classes benefited from these new systems first. And with this transition, we need to reverse that. We need to make sure that the the most vulnerable in society, those who are in fuel poverty, get the best out of this transition first. But my concern is that they're going to become the guinea pigs for these new systems. And they already are because the social housing sector tends to pick up these innovations first. So their tenants tend to be the guinea pigs, but they get a lot of support, hopefully from their landlords around that but what worries me is the private rented sector i feel like the private rented sector needs to come first but chances are it won't i think the context you've just framed there is are of occupants who don't necessarily have control over how they heat their homes how might we put control back in the hands of tenants either private rented or social because it feels like there's some important decisions that need to be made and these people are living in these environments themselves. Honestly, I don't know how you do it. It's a really tough one. It's called the split incentive, that that problem, where the person who's paying for the improvement doesn't benefit um, directly from it. So there's no incentive to, to really do it. You've got to somehow uh, give more rights to the tenant and make them enforceable as well because there is regulation around the private rented sector and energy efficiency that doesn't get enforced because local authorities are just so hard pressed. Where it gets quite complicated is it it may be that a saving on your energy bill may then leak into consumption outside the home. If you take your average income earning house, you save 300 quid on their bill a year, they may then spend that 300 pounds on flights for holiday or to run their car more. I mean, is this something that you've picked up in in the research, sort of that indirect energy rebound? Um, It it certainly makes sense as an argument, but um, fuel poor households are not using the money they save to go and splash out on lavish holiday and to be honest i wouldn't begrudge them if they did i know i'm absolutely uh, not suggesting that you do, they I know, are yeah. I, know, I know you're not they face multiple deprivations in life and you heard the the heat or eat maxim that's often talked about and that is that is a real choice i've come across it in my research households definitely choose between not whether they eat or heat the home, but what they eat. And I spoke to a lot of people eating cold food out of tins, relying on those cheap packets of noodles and, and cheap white bread to fill their, their kids' stomachs up. 
So, you know, any saving on energy bills probably going to go into a more nutritious diet or servicing the other debts that you're not able to or, or buying essentials that your children need. It, you know, it's unlikely to go into to fueling the, the kind of problematic consumption that we see around us. I do think the middle classes will benefit first from this, and I don't think that's necessarily right. I think we need to make sure people benefit across the board. So who needs to take a lead to help us do that, right? So in a middle-class-led transition, a lot of that is down to market dynamics. Do we need other incentives or policies, either coming from national government or regional or local authorities, to help drive this forward in different ways? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think... I hate to keep coming back to tenure, but I think it's a key factor here. So the middle classes will will come on board when the market dynamics are right, when they can see a tangible financial benefit where the cost benefit ratio is, is at the right level. The social housing sector will, will come on board because they're often subsidised to to try these things and to adopt these technologies. And they have conditions attached to their social housing grants that mean they have to do more in terms of renewable energy and carbon reduction. The big gap is is the private rented sector in the middle. Who needs to take the lead? Well, you know, it'd be great to see government making more of a, a stand on this. But local authorities are really best placed to know their area best. You know, they have the local intelligence in terms of what's going to work. They have the relationships with the with the housing providers and the residents and the networks of voluntary and community sector organisations that are really well placed to communicate with householders. But I think they're hugely under-resourced and stretched at the moment. And we see this in their inability to enforce the minimum energy efficiency standards. They're just really stretched, but I feel like they're best placed. If you were having to recommend any particular measure, either existing or or new to government, what would it be to to really tackle the issue of fuel poverty? There's got to be a a national insulation programme. It should be publicly funded and it shouldn't cost low-income homeowners anything. So I'm not saying we should go in and insulate wealthy people's homes for free, but I think the majority of homes we should be insulating for free. But if you launch a national insulation programme that's going to cover the majority of, of existing homes in the country, it would be a huge opportunity for the economy and for employment and for upskilling. It wouldn't be simple and straightforward. There are lots of different property types with lots of complexities, but I, I believe that's the way forward. Thanks, Amy. This has been absolutely brilliant. Uh, you've opened up a lot of a lot of interesting insights for us uh, through our conversation today. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been it's been great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me rant. Next on Local Zero, we're hearing from Luke Fraser at the Orkney Islands Council and Gareth Davies from Aquaterra. Both are involved with Orkney's new flagship energy project, Reflex. Becky, what on earth is Reflex? Yeah, we need to do a bit of jargon busting to set things up here, (laughs) don't we? So Project Reflex, which is led by the European Marine Energy Centre, or EMEC for short, is funded through the UK's Prospering from the Energy Revolution programme. And Reflex is trying to bring together the local authority, local businesses and the communities to help maximise the use of renewable energy on the island, while also trying to reduce the very high levels of fuel poverty that they're experiencing there. I'm Luke Fraser. I work for Orkney Islands Council, and my team run all our energy efficiency programmes for the private sector. My name is Gareth Davis. I'm Managing Director of a company called Aquaterra. Um, We're based in Stromness in Orkney, and we get involved in a lot of consultancy work uh, associated with sustainable energy solutions for 
communities uh, and industries. So welcome, Luke and Gareth. It's great to have you both here. But for many people, when they they hear Orkney, they might not necessarily think about fuel poverty. They probably think about some of the, the great energy innovation and the strides forward that are being made in Orkney around renewable energy. But my understanding is that fuel poverty is actually quite a big issue in Orkney. Orkney is very well known for the level of wind, wave and tide that we have there and the amount of energy that we generate. But that same raw energy is is one of the reasons that we have quite high fuel poverty because basically any house that's sticking up above the ground basically the wind just wicks the heat away from that house because it's quite exposed to the raw energy and quite a, a, the, the wind the damp wind laden with salt uh, from the sea um, and so that's a, a big factor in the amount of energy that our households use one of the other factors is the age of a lot of the housing stock and the third thing before i hand over to luke and he can talk a bit more about the technical side is that in terms of the price that we pay for energy in many of the forms of energy that other people are used to in other parts of the uk they're more expensive in orkney and for example we don't have mains gas so that means that we have to rely on other forms of of heating and so luke maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the some of the stuff that you guys have been doing in the council have you been running programs to address this yeah, um, we've had we've been running a program for a number of years. Um, the Scottish government hands out fun, uh, funding to councils on a yearly basis for energy efficiency programs to try and tackle fuel poverty. It's called the Heap Sabs scheme, which is the home energy efficiency program for Scotland area-based schemes. It's largely an insulation program, so it's aimed at the fabric first. We try and improve the fabric of the building first, as Gareth mentioned. Uh, a lot of our heating stock is not mains gas; it's oil or it's electric, so it's quite expensive being electric, or it's quite dirty being oil. One of the key challenges we have in Orkney is the high size of the housing stock. You know, we don't have tower blocks. We don't have tenements and terraces, which are you've got one external wall or maybe two. We've got a lot of detached housing. So you're treating all four walls of the property. So the external wall insulation job can be into the 20,000s without pounds without any problems. Not because it's a big, big house, but just because you're treating all four, all four elevations, which also means you're getting the weathering on all four sides as well. I think just looking at some of the other projects that you're you're undertaking to try and tackle fuel poverty on all the islands, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Reflex project and how this is hoping to harness some of the, the indigenous power, uh, particularly you know indigenous to the island. How are you looking to harness that to make people's lives greener, but also more affordable? The concept that we've come up with is that really as a society, we've kind of fragmented our use of energy over the decades. And we've got used to buying one form of energy from one supplier and another form of energy from another supplier. And that's not been joined up together. And what that means is as a householder, we're not really aware of our total energy picture. And we're not totally in control of all of the elements that uh, lead to energy costs. So one of the things that Reflex does is it's going to bring the supply of electricity, the supply of heat, and the supply of mobility solutions, transport to households together under one integrated service. That concept of a service is also important. So as I said, as householders, we're kind of left to get on with it. Choose your own supplier, choose the technology you're going to apply, and you know you live the life that you lead. What we want to do with Reflex is help people make more informed choices about a suite of services and technologies that can link together in one way. So it may be that your transport and mobility solution helps provide support for electricity or heat at other times of day. It may be that you make strategic choices about how you use electricity, which helps reduce costs as well. So it's it's integrating all of that into one bundled up service 
and then helping the householder understand how to drive down the costs and the efficiency of that uh, system. So this is really exciting. But I think when we look at past transitions or, or the uptake of these kind of new technologies or innovations, we tend to see them being taken up by the middle classes first or those that can afford it first. So are you doing anything in particular to make sure that you're bringing everyone along with you in, in Orkney and in this project? Yeah, I think one of the key things we're looking at doing is is we're trying to tie in a lot of the funding and stuff that's available through our, our insulation program, through things at RHI and others as well. We're trying to finance things up front so there's no upfront payments for households. So you're trying to get them into the Reflex project through that door. So we have certainly found with things like Renewable Heat Incentive, if you can afford to pay the upfront cost of installation, that's brilliant because you can then claim the RHI over the seven years. But a lot of those lower income households, they can't afford that £10,000 plus for a heat pump. Even if they can get an entry loan from the Scottish government, older households, they don't want to take on a loan. They don't want the, the debt and the risk there. So we, tr we try and fund things up front as much as we possibly can. We do that through the insulation, the grant available through that. So we're trying to take the funding and the things we have and other, other funds and other partners, bringing that together alongside Reflex so that when somebody comes through the door asking about a new tariff or asking about a battery or something, we can also potentially offer them and say, well, yeah, that's brilliant, but we've got this other stuff over here that can help you keep your home warm as well. We've got these other funds we can bring in. Fantastic. Uh, the Reflex project, £28.5 million funded through the UK government's Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. If we look forward a few years and we, we take that grant funding out, I think you mentioned some of the other subsidies like the renewable heat incentive, maybe the feed-in tariff, other forms of ongoing subsidy. How does this generate income for the Orkney Islands um, in a few years' time without subsidy? The challenge with, with any subsidy is, is to be clear about what it's doing. Very often subsidies are used to help early adoption of new transformational technologies. Obviously, the reality is that energy use within a household or a business or a public building, that's not new. We have that already. And at the moment, it's been a pretty carbon full energy system that we've used. And that's come at a certain price and it's had certain consequences. And one of those is that in a place like Orkney, perhaps 64, 65 percent of the households are in fuel poverty as measured by the government. So the status quo isn't without its considerable problems. So what Reflex is doing, as well as integrating those uh, energy modes into one package, it's then thinking strategically about how do we help households and businesses reach a more affordable status of energy use. Now, affordability is driven by a number of different things. If you've got a house that's leaking heat into the environment because the wind's blowing on all four walls, as Luke was explaining, you know that means that you're going to be paying more for your energy. So if you can insulate it, you know, you're going to reduce costs. If we can use local energy, which doesn't have to be transmitted down grid lines from other parts of the UK, that should make it more cost effective because we're not having the losses down the system. And if we can be smart about how we use energy so that at the moment our energy use through the day and the night varies considerably, if we can smooth that out so that our energy system can work in a more levelised way, that means that we can be more efficient about, for example, the size of grid that we have serving each of the houses. So each of these mechanisms are examples of how we can make the energy system more efficient. What we're doing is empowering the customer to take on new technology and new behavior, but sharing the value of that with them directly because they, they become a partner, if you like, in that uh, transaction over the energy that's supplied to them.
I think that really speaks to quite quite an interesting situation there. So Orkney Islands face a unique blend of challenges that we've talked about, but you've also kind of got a unique blend of opportunities and resources to be able to, to, to solve them. I mean, what we've been able to do is to free our minds up from the, we're not trying to recreate what we've had in the past. We're really trying to say, look, the past wasn't good enough. What can we do in the, in the future? And it's come at the right time. Um, you know, the, the whole movement around climate change, you know, Greta Thunberg has come onto the scene and really pushed us in our consciousness to think about what we're doing. Um, you know, government policy has, has moved um, and set the net zero targets. You know, so it's it forces everybody to think, you know, if if the UK is saying at the moment 2015, maybe that'll come forward. Scotland's saying 2045. We can't all end up in 2044 and suddenly expect to jump across on Hogmanay from a carbonized state into a decarbonized state. So one of the things that we say in Orkney is that we need communities who are going to be the lighthouse communities that get to decarbonization first. Now, Orkney's made so much of that journey as our, our wind turbines are already providing more energy than we need for our electricity system. So we're over 100% of our uh, electricity demand comes from renewables already. So we've achieved that target. But we now need to move on to transport. We need to move on to heating. And so if we want to be at the front, we need to be that lighthouse community, as I said. It's that going back to the collectivism and the shared ambition it's the realization that that's what we have to achieve that's binding us together and creating that sense of purpose. So we see people coming to Orkney and saying, you guys are 10 years ahead because you don't have mains gas to fall back on. You're electrifying heating. You're putting in heat pumps. You're doing all the skills change because you have to. If they phase out heating oil, we have electric and we have heating oil. We've got 4,000 properties on heating oil that need to be transferred onto something else. And heat pumps is the way to do it. So do you think that a big a big part of this is because you are an island community and you've got such a, a uniqueness, um, how transferable do you think some of the things that you've done and the approaches that you've taken might be to other communities or regions? What um, differentiates us in the sense of being able to move fast is around the unification of boundaries within an island setting. Every single organization shares the same organizational boundary, which is basically the, the coastline of the islands. Within Orkney, everybody in Orkney and everybody that sees Orkney knows what Orkney is, and we can work with it then in a more stable and progressive way. So the transferability of that might be that it might be a lesson to us in our government systems to say, is it really sensible to have these boundaries which overlap all the time? Could we actually unify boundaries into one organizational structure? I think it's been fair to say that Orkney, given that we've already got 100% of our electricity coming from renewables, we're ahead of the curve. What we're always trying to do is to pull people along behind us and say, look, we've proven this is possible. Let's get after it on a bigger scale. And when people come to Orkney and see what's possible, basically the art of the achievable, it really encourages them to, to be more ambitious themselves. Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thank you, Luke. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, welcome anytime. Yep. I'm sure we'll have you back over the course of the series. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for joining us. Take care. See you soon. Bye. Then. Bye. So we've had three very interesting conversations about fuel poverty from three very, very different angles. And particularly for me, what, what came through strongest when we were talking to Luke and Gareth was that Fuel poverty isn't something that we can just address on its own. It's part of a much bigger system of, of issues. So trying to address it on its own might not be the best solution, but embedding it 
in kind of wider climate initiatives or initiatives to address environmental solutions and problems can actually be the way forward. No, spot on. And I think the interesting thing with the Orkney Islands is you've got an island which is looking to transform its energy system, but also it's trying to transform its economy. They're leading the UK in terms of uh, heat, heat pump deployment per capita. They've got almost more EVs per hectare, or however you want to describe it, you know, than anywhere else. Moving from the Orkney Islands example to maybe the broader issue of fuel poverty and what Amy was saying, some things really stood out for me. And I think tenure was the big one. Many of us think of fuel poverty as an issue or at least uh, paying over the odds for our energy is an issue that can be solved with things like switching and and lagging your loft and, and taking, you know, uh, key decisions within your home about changing the thermostat. Now, you know, much of this, many of the key decisions about the, em- the building envelope and the fabric that we live in, but also how much we pay for our energy, much of this can be dictated by your social housing provider, also your you know, private landlord. So, you know, it, it ain't that simple for these people. I think that's very interesting as well on the topic of, of tenure. This is something that Lucy picked up on on the previous episode as well, what what please, people like South Seeds who are helping on the ground to help alleviate fuel poverty. What they find is that tenure is also a hugely critical component what I think I've learned or what seems to have shaken out from from the interviews, the discussions today, but also from previous episodes, right, from discussions that we've had with Polly, from discussions that we've had with Roddy as well, is that understanding the lived experience of people who are going through fuel poverty, as much as anything else, the whole system's approach, but focusing in on that lived experience is absolutely crucial to getting anywhere near addressing not just the issue of fuel poverty, but that wider just transition to net zero. It's probably important not to villainize the the people on the other side of the coin, right? So we talk a lot about tenure from the perspective of the person that's living in that private, privately rented accommodation. But actually, their landlords probably aren't the devil. They're probably going through a whole load of, of challenges and issues themselves where the context perhaps isn't set up in a way that enables them to address some of the more systemic issues. Well, I think this this is a prime spot for regulation. You know, a landlord isn't a benevolent charity. They're not somebody who is there to provide, uh, I'm talking private rented sector, they're not there to provide something for nothing. And so they'll operate like any other business, which is up against the boundaries of what is permissible by, you know, regulation. You know, we really need to take a hard look at this and ask private landlords, not only what would force them to make these changes, but what would help them to make these changes? For me, it's never helpful to look at any industry as the villain, and I'm not certainly not standing up for all the, the dodgy landlords I've had in the past. Uh, some were good, some weren't. Yeah, and there's probably a whole other load of players in this that we haven't thought about. So I know that when I uh, lived in my past accommodation, which was privately rented, we had some really serious issues. We actually had floods and holes in the ceiling. And my landlords were brilliant and wanted to help the best they could and were completely constrained by what the insurance company would let them do. Who are the other really important kind of key holders in this? Who can help unlock addressing fuel poverty across the board? And now it's time for something completely different. Our final segment of the show, Future or Fiction. In this segment, Fraser pitches an exciting and innovative energy technology idea. And Becky and I have to decide if we think it's the future or it's complete tosh. So, Fraser, what do you have for us today? 
I have a brand new, super exciting technology called Good Vibrations. Scientists have found new use for a rare metal that can absorb vibrations and sound and convert that into usable energy. The metal can be used to create batteries, it's cited to have huge military potential, and it can even allegedly be woven into fabric. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? Certainly got a catchy name. It does, doesn't it? Very Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah. I'm hearing the theme song. This is ringing, ringing tunes of, of something we had in a previous episode around um, converting those vibrations into usable energy. I feel like this isn't too far away from that. I don't know if that helps me or not. Is it? Is it that it's fairly close and therefore I believe it? Or is it fairly close and therefore I believe <laughs> Fraser's made it up? <laughs> it's kind of double bluff, isn't it? You're not sure. <laughs> well, we've got to think through this logically, right? So uh, I guess vibrations are just a form of kinetic energy or, or a transfer of kinetic energy. This is specifically vibrations from sound as opposed to previously we had kinetic kinetic energy about your personal okay. this is acoustic acoustic yes acoustic right so so in theory we could wrap whatever device this is around the sydney opera house okay and and that's going to generate some power for you know next door i mean don't be, i'm about right don't be ridiculous matt that might be pushing that a little bit too <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i guess i guess if you had enough of it sure yeah okay it sounds possible. So this is, are we talking, this is just sound waves or are we talking about this is, you know, something that's being captured through transfer. So, you know, let's say uh, we're putting these devices next to the M6, right? And each time an HGV rolls by, it's absorbing the, the energy from that and converting it into power. That's vaguely my understanding of it. One of the one of the things that I either read or made up about it is that it has potential uh, military applications, which I took to mean sort of um, like I, I don't know, like an armored vehicle or something like that. Or if it could, I don't know, the the noise of military vehicles could be harnessed somehow. I don't know. Okay, Becky. Well, so you look you you don't look convinced. <laughs> I'm more convinced than I was about space-based solar, which turned out to be true. Which turned out to be a so bankable a bankable <laughs> technology. <laughs> <laughs> so purely based on that, I feel like I have to go for future. Yeah, I'm not sure what you and I would make very good venture capitalists, actually. <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm going. So firstly, I like the name, and I would invest in that Fraser. I, I'm I'm going for. I think this is nonsense. Sorry. That's the final answers locked in. Yep. Yeah. I like I like the disagreement here. I like the disagreement. <laughs> good vibrations. This is. I'm afraid, Becky. <laughs> ah, I finally got one right. <laughs> Fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe will recognise this as Vibranium from the Black Panther movie. Which I've even watched! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's satisfying. So you've been listening to Local Zero with Matt Hannon, Rebecca Ford and Fraser Stewart. Thanks for joining us. Remember to find us on Twitter, use the hashtag LocalZero or at EnergyRevUK. Join in the conversation, ask us questions and we'll try and get to them later in the series. But for now, thanks and bye. See you later. Bye.
produced by Bespoken Media.